listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Singley. Israel as King David. And specifically, we're looking at how his life points to the King of Kings, the greatest King of all. Now, if you've been with us for the last couple of months, um, we're ending this series, this year-long series on Jesus in types. And types are simply things in the Old Testament, things, people, um, rituals in the Old Testament that point to the ultimate thing, um, people that point to the ultimate person. See, we believe here at Life Church that this Bible is the book that God wrote, and it's all about Jesus. And so a type is someone simply that points to or foreshadows Jesus, someone that represents him or, or that, that causes us to say, hey, that's a lot like Jesus. And David is certainly an important type of Christ. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start at the beginning of David's life, and we're going to look at um, some of the things that maybe we haven't realized that point us to Christ. And there's some interesting ones here. And um, some of this I'm, I'm relying on the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon for because uh, he did a lot of great work with types. But then we're going to look at how ultimately uh, David messed up big time. And the best that David could do was point to the ultimate king. So here we go. We're going to be in First uh, and Second Samuel today. Um, David's life is also chronicled in the Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. Uh, and because his life is so massive, he's such a big character in the Bible, we just don't have time to even touch all the scriptures. So I'm going to jump around a little bit. And um, we're going to look at some specific cases of how, how David points to Christ. And then we're going to talk about the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And we'll begin at David's beginning. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us anything specifically about his birth other than where he was born. It tells us that David was born in Bethlehem. And isn't that interesting? Like Jesus, David was born in the little uh, dumpy town of Bethlehem. And there's no nicer way to put it. But this was prophesied that Jesus would be born there in Micah 5, verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So both David and Jesus came from this humble beginning in this dumpy rural hick town called Bethlehem. And you think, how in this, why would this be God's plan to have these, these great kings, and especially the king of kings, come from such a humble beginning? I mean, it could be argued that Jesus' beginning was even more humble than David because he didn't even have a home to be born in. We read that he was born in a stable amongst all the animals. They both came from humble beginnings, and it's an unlikely beginning at that. For a king, you would think, why not be born in a palace or at least the great city, the capital city, or the center of all the, of all the things happening in the land? But no, they start out humble. And like Jesus, we find out that David was a shepherd. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 11 tells us the story of how the prophet Samuel came to uh, Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, who was David's father, and that was because he was going to anoint the new king of Israel. Saul had been abandoned by God because of his disobedience, and so Samuel was sent to Jesse's house, and he goes through all of David's brothers, and God says, nope, not those, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. And he says, do you have any more sons? And Jesse says, yeah, there's the one out tending the sheep. David was a shepherd, and he was a good shepherd at that. Uh, He tells King Saul this story that he says, whenever a lion or a bear would grab one of my sheep, he says, I would grab it by the beard. Now, anatomically, 
on a lion or a bear, the beard was very close to the mouth and the paws. So this is a very dangerous move. Uh, But he says, I would go up to this thing, and I would grab it by the beard, and I would get that sheep out of its mouth. You talk about commitment as a shepherd. I mean, I think I would say, all right, other sheep, you saw what happened. You know, let's, let's just go over here and, and no more wandering off. But I'm certainly not going to go grab a lion or a bear by the beard, wherever, you know, however they have beards back then, and, and rip this sheep out of the lion's mouth. But David did that. He killed these animals. He protected his sheep. And, and like fashion, Jesus comes along, and in John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So like David, Jesus fights off the beasts that are trying to devour us. He takes the beasts and opens their mouth and frees us, brings us into safety, back to his father. Jesus is the greater David, and he's the greater shepherd. Like Jesus, additionally, David was the Lord's anointed We read in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So David is anointed with oil, and a lot of times we think that's what it means to be anointed, but to be anointed really means that the the Spirit of God came upon him. And we see that the Spirit of God rushed upon David. And in like fashion... Jesus is called the Messiah, which means the anointed one. And he's not the anointed one with oil. He's the one anointed with the Holy Spirit. So when we say Messiah, we say he is the one anointed with the Spirit of God. So like David, Jesus is the anointed one. He's the sent one. It was at his baptism that he's anointed. You can see, you remember that picture that Jesus is baptized? And we got this good visual last week in the waters of baptism. But he comes up out of the water and his father proclaims his pleasure for his son. And then we see the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. Jesus was anointed with the Spirit of God. Additionally, like Jesus, David's presence would cause evil spirits to leave. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23 reads, And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. See, David got into this interesting vocation. Um, Because he was good at playing the harp, um, King Saul had not only been left by Yahweh, but Yahweh had given him uh, an evil spirit to torment him because of his disobedience to God. And so Saul said, "I I, I need some help with this. And some of his men said, I hear there's this kid that's full of the Spirit of God and he can play the harp. Why don't we have him come and play? And so David got this job that every time the Spirit would would be bothering King Saul, he would play and the Spirit would leave and Saul would be at peace. David had a lot of similarity to Jesus in this. We can think of the New Testament stories when Jesus just by speaking the word or giving the command or by being present, evil spirits would just be um, irritated and, and have to leave. They'd be like, don't, they'd be frightened. It's because he was filled with the presence of the living God. Like Jesus, David was sent by his father to his brothers and into a battle. 1 Samuel chapter 17 tells us a story, probably one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. It's David and Goliath. And um, right now I get a nightly uh, review of this story because of my daughter Jada. Um, and I don't know what it is about David and Goliath, um, but Jada just loves this story. 
And so whatever story I decide to read, we have to read David and Goliath as a closer. And what troubles me is that Jade has actually taken a little bit more liking to the character of Goliath. Um, so I'm kind of like, you know, I know you. She's memorized all Goliath's words in the Jesus Storybook Bible. So when we get to the story, she says, chickens, your God can't save you. I'll rip your heads off and have you on toast. And I'm like, you know, I know Goliath said that, but look at what David said. You know, David's kind of the hero here, and maybe we should think about Jesus. And, and, but no, she likes Goliath. I want to see Goliath, Dad. I want David and Goliath. And so I get a nightly review of this story. And um, this is, you know, everybody knows about this story, but there's some fascinating similarities um, to Jesus here in this story and what David does here. And, and like I said, in verse 17 of chapter 17, David is sent by his father to his brothers and into a battle. It says, And Jesus said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So like David, Jesus is sent by his fathers to his brothers, the Jews. Um, And also we find out that, uh, like Jesus, David's brothers do not receive him. They don't have anything good to say about him. In fact, they accuse him of wrong motives here. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 28, David has just heard Goliath's challenge. And, you know, the little phrase of what Jade always says, basically, your God can't save you. I'm going to rip your heads off, have you on toast. And David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? I'm going to take this dude down. And his brother Eliab, his oldest brother, uh, hears about this, and he says, Eliab's brother was, uh, anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? That's like a B.C. slam right there. Um, Who have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Kind of like, your job is pretty lame, man. You just got a couple of sheep. That's, that's a low blow right there. That's below the belt. But anyway, he goes on, and he says, um, I, know your, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've just come down to see a battle. So he slams his occupation, and then he says, you just want to hide behind a bush and watch a fight, don't you? Just like Jesus, David was not received by his brothers, and he's mocked by his brothers, in fact. Then, like Jesus... David was filled with great passion and fervor for God's name and the people of God who were being oppressed. So David hears this uncircumcised Philistine making fun of the God of the universe, of the God of Israel, and he says, we can't let him do that. You mean he's been doing this every day? Because Goliath doesn't just give the challenge once. He comes out and he mocks Israel and Israel's God every day. He comes out and he declares, this God cannot save you. I'll kill you and your God basically what he's saying. And he does this on a daily basis. He repeats this challenge. And David's like, you guys are going to let this happen when the living God is behind you? He's filled with passion and fervor for God's name. He wants to defend God's name. He's saying, you don't do this. You don't say these kind of things to the living God and get away with it. In like fashion, Jesus is also filled with the same kind of fervor and passion. We think about the story when he cleanses the temple And his disciples see this and they're like, whoa, what got into him? John chapter 2, verse 17, the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus had the same kind of zeal that King David did. It was zeal for God's name and for his people. Finally, like Jesus, David was filled with motivation to fight the enemy Goliath, to win his bride, even at the risk of his own life. 
So here's what happened. Um, King Saul, here's the, the challenge from Goliath. Goliath says, listen, you send out your best fighter. If he kills me, we'll be your servants. If I kill him, you guys are going to be our servants. That's the deal. We're not going to shed all this blood in this big battle. Just let's two of us fight. And Saul says, all right, the guy that goes out and kills him gets a lot of money and my daughter as his wife. This is big time. This is like the jackpot. You know, this is like guaranteed wealth, guaranteed status. You're in the king's family, guaranteed protection ongoing. And so David, um, to win his bride, goes out to fight this great enemy. And likewise, we read in Hebrews that Jesus sort of does the same thing. It says in Hebrews that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So what was the joy that was set before our King Jesus, that he would go into battle with the greatest enemy the world has ever known? It was us, the church, his bride. It was us. He said, there's my bride. I will fight anyone. I will go to any length, even if it costs me my own life. And it did. But I'll do anything to have her. And he went and he fought the greatest enemy, defeated the greatest enemy so that he could have his bride, the church. Now, according to the English preacher Charles Spurgeon, Goliath in Hebrew means middleman. It means middleman. I'm taking his word for it on this one. And this is because he fought on behalf of his people. Okay, so he said, you guys, all my Philistine brothers, you guys don't have to fight. I'll fight. I'll go in between you. And so David also steps forward in front of Israel and becomes a middleman, becomes a guy that stands in front and fights on behalf of other people, on behalf of his people. And in this way, he is like Christ, our mediator. Because Christ goes in front of us, stands before us and says, you guys can't fight this enemy, he will destroy you. You guys couldn't win this battle on your own, I will fight it for you. I will do what you could not do. And additionally, he goes and he pleads our case with the Father. He is our great mediator. He tells the Father, they are mine, they are clean, they are righteous, they belong to me. He's like our lawyer in that sense. He says, don't believe what the accuser is telling you. These these people belong to me. They are innocent because of what I have done. They are righteous. And so we have this great advocate, this mediator. And 1 Timothy tells us about this. He says in 1 Timothy, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And like Jesus, David fought a great battle with a powerful enemy and liberated God's people from oppression. Now, this is probably the most interesting part of the story of David and Goliath, that at the end, David you know, throws a stone, it hits Goliath, he falls over dead, and then he goes to him and cuts off his head with his sword. This is where we, the story kind of turns from PG to something else. But he, but he grabs this great big sword, and he cuts off the giant's head with the giant's own sword. You might think, why didn't he just grab one of his own swords or whatever? But this is significant. I mean, think about it. The very weapon that Goliath was intending on using to take off David's head ends up being used to remove his head. And when we think about Jesus Christ and what he did, Satan intended to kill Jesus Christ with the cross and to, and to eliminate him forever. It was to be the death of him. 
It was to be the end of him and to be the great beginning of Satan's reign. He said, I got him. I'm destroying him. But Jesus takes that cross and through his death and resurrection, he destroys his greatest enemy. He used the enemy's weapon against him. And now we all wear crosses around. You know, in the first century, nobody would have been doing that. That would be like us wearing little electric chairs, you know, on our necklaces, walking around. They would think, that's just gruesome to wear a cross. But now it stands for us as a sign of victory. Because Jesus takes this cross and stabs it into the great dragon, and it is over. He uses the, the enemy's weapon against him and to accomplish the greatest victory that good has ever seen. The greatest victory that we could have ever imagined. Now, shortly after this great victory that David accomplishes over Goliath, um, he encounters a lot of suffering. Like Jesus, David was persecuted even though he'd done nothing wrong. Saul begins to get jealous of David's popularity. Remember, the women are singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his tens of thousands. It's a problem for a king with an ego. And like Jesus, plots were made to take David's life. I mean, you think about it, David was almost like a son to King Saul. He had rescued the kingdom from the tyranny of Goliath. He served Saul faithfully. And yet Saul here is betraying him and trying to kill him. We see this in, in uh, several places. Uh, but specifically, we see that in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 26, because Saul makes uh, valid attempts to take a group of men out and kill David. And David has to hide in the mountains and things like that. And here we see that like Jesus, David treats his enemies with mercy and kindness, sparing Saul's life twice. So God takes Saul and Saul is out in the mountains chasing after David and David's hiding out. And twice, God delivers Saul right into David's hand. He could have just run him through. It would have been as easy as ever. He could have just had one of his guys do it. Yep, take him out. And in this way, he's also tempted like Jesus because his men say to him things like, look, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Just take his life. It's a gimme. You know, it'll be easy. And David's tempted because, look, all the kingdom can be his now. He knows he's the Lord's anointed. He's tired of running and, and, and fearing for his life. But in the end, he does what is righteous. He refuses to touch the Lord's anointed. In this way, he's also like Jesus, that when he was tempted, he refused the temptation. He refused the temptation. I mean, what was Jesus' temptation? What did the enemy tempt him with? Well, one of the main things that he tempted Jesus with in the wilderness is he said, look at this, all this can be yours. And that's sort of David's temptation too, isn't it? Look, the kingdom can be yours. Saul's life can be over. It's in your hands. God has delivered him into your hands. And this way, God is also testing David, and he passes the test with flying colors. He refused to touch the Lord's anointed. He is gracious and merciful and kind to his enemies. And so David becomes king over Israel. Saul commits suicide after being wounded in battle. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see that God establishes a covenant with David. Now, God establishes these covenants with several people throughout the Old Testament, um, with Abraham and Noah and David. And so this Davidic covenant, we call it, um, and by the way, a covenant is like a, uh, a contract, but it's more serious than that, and it's more intimate than that. It's, it's binding and legal like a contract, but it, it, we don't really have a better word for it than that. Than that. It's, it's binding and legal, but it is close and intimate as well. Um, 
And this covenant that, that uh, God established with David, it says in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes David this incredible promise. He says, your house, someone from your house is going to always sit on the throne of Israel, which would include eventually the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. It's quite a promise. It's quite a covenant. Now, unfortunately, David made some terrible mistakes that really screwed up his life and the life of his family. He took a guy's wife, Uriah, one of his most faithful men. Um, He took his wife, Bathsheba, slept with her, got her pregnant, then tried to cover it up by having Uriah come home. And Uriah was honorable, above reproach. He wouldn't go home and sleep with his wife. And so eventually David had him killed in a roundabout way by sending him to the battle lines and saying, withdraw from him. And Uriah is killed. David did the unthinkable, committed adultery, stole a man's wife, and then murdered her husband to cover it up. But God saw it. And when David was confronted with his sin, he repented immediately. And we must remember here that in seeing um, some of the tragic flaws in David, it shouldn't disappoint us. uh, Because David is not the hero of the biblical narrative. Um, And sometimes... That's difficult for people because we often hear the Bible is a book of heroes, right? These are people that we're supposed to emulate and be like. Well, we're only supposed to try to be like them to the point that they were like Christ. And so David, the best that he can do is point to the great hero, the great king. Now, in spite of David's sin and his disobedience, God is faithful to his covenant. And this should surprise us in some ways that God is so diligent and so faithful and so um, rigorous about keeping his covenants. He keeps his promise to David, and we see this in the story of Jesus. Um, We see this in the genealogy. Now, how many of you love to read genealogies? You do this when you get home from work at night. You just get refreshed by this, okay? Larry does. I knew it. Larry gets in after a hard day on the farm and says, where's my Bible? I've got to open up to the Gospels and get some genealogy going here. Um, I'm not a big fan of genealogies, but here's the thing. These things are, are screaming at us that God is faithful to his promises. That's why they're in here. They're showing us that, look, God has kept his promises. And we read in Matthew chapter 1 the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it begins like this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what's Matthew saying to begin with? He's saying, look, God has kept his promise to Abraham. His covenant to Abraham was that I'll make you a great nation. And is he doing that? You bet he is. And his covenant to David is someone from your family will always sit on the throne. And is he keeping that promise? You bet he is. And so I'm going to read this genealogy here of Jesus Christ in Matthew. And um, the main rule with reading genealogies is to read quickly and confidently and not to pay too much attention to the names. So here we go. Uh, Verse 2 of Matthew chapter 1. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. By the way, Rahab was the prostitute from Jericho. Interesting that she's in Jesus' lineage. And by the way, Ruth was a Moabitess, so we have all kinds of people in Jesus' lineage that should teach us some things, but that's another sermon another day. 
And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So here we are at the Davidic covenant, okay? And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And he kind of mentions that in there. This wasn't David's wife. This was the wife of Uriah. And so David's sin is ever before him, but God uses that and brings Jesus through that line. It's amazing. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So then we come up to another major event in Israel's history, which is the exile, when they were conquered and dragged off to Babylon. Okay? And then we get to verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, uh, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David, from the Abrahamic to the Davidic covenant were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Isn't that amazing? God kept his promise to David. He brought the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of all kings, through David's line. So now let's look at this king of kings for a few minutes here before we close. Jesus was a promised king from the very beginning. Matthew chapter 2, 2 says, The wise men came, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw its star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Uh, We don't see a lot about Jesus' life in between his birth and his ministry, other than at age 12 he's teaching in the temple. But once his ministry started at age 30, it says in John chapter 6, verse 15, that he refused any attempt by people to make him an earthly king, with earthly, military, and political power. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So people clearly, when Jesus arrived and started doing these miracles, the Israelites were like, yes, King David is back, except better. That's, that was their hope. And if you watch the, the new series that came out in the Bible, they do a nice job bringing this out. Because David, under David, the land flourished. Under David, the people were blessed. And so they had very fond memories of when they were under David. They had this good king, basically good, with some big-time errors. Um, but, but they had this basically good king, and, and the land flourished and blossomed. They were like, man, we want a king like that again to liberate us from this Roman rule. And so Jesus shows up, and they're like, maybe this is him. Who could do these things after all if God were not with him? Maybe this is the Messiah, the anointed one. And so they're like, yes. Every miracle they saw, they're like, yes, let's, let's make him a king. And Jesus says, no. That's not, that's not the way this is going to go down. He told Pilate right before his death, his crucifixion, he says, my kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be handed over to the Jews, but my kingship is not from the world, John eighteen thirty six. So Jesus says, nope. Sorry to disappoint you but I'm not that kind of a king right now. That's not the way that my kingdom is going to be established. 
Nonetheless, Jesus did have a kingdom whose arrival he announced in his preaching. Matthew 4.17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this was his message. The kingdom of heaven is here. I've come to bring a new kingdom. It's not like the one they were dreaming of, where he would come with military force and political power. But in the end, we'll find out that it's even better than what they imagined. Then as we get closer to his death and resurrection, we get closer to Jesus proclaiming his kingship. And um, he doesn't refuse when his disciples cry out, in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and this is, of course, Palm Sunday, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this would have been an amazing switch to witness that as Jesus rides in on this donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, everybody's shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, and they're saying, Hosanna, and and bowing down to him and throwing their coats and these palm branches on the road. And then not even a week later, this same crowd is shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus would indeed be crucified and with a very fitting sign over his head that read, King of the Jews. This was a mockery to Jesus, but it could not have been more true. He is the King of the Jews. He's the King of the whole world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus died, was buried, and according to the creed, he rose again the third day. Then Jesus, in his resurrection, it's almost like his his inauguration, his announcement that, yes, I am the king. Now, what had been kind of hush-hush before, you know, Jesus is always telling people, don't tell anyone about this, or don't say anything about this, or I know I did that miracle, but don't tell anyone. Now, he's publicly proclaiming, yes, I am the king. I am the Messiah. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. We read this in Ephesians that Jesus' resurrection gives him all sorts of new authority and power by God the Father. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22, it says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So Jesus is given this authority. He's given this kingship. He's even given new names and titles as his resurrection. The king is crowned. But then, of course, he doesn't take rule over the earth then. He ascends and promises to return. And it's in this return that his authority over all the world and over the church will be seen um, in even greater detail. And this is where we see in places like Revelation 19 that when Jesus comes again, we're going to have to adjust our view of him a little bit. Because if you walk into like Crossroads um, or other, you just listen to like Christian radio, you're going to hear a lot of things that sort of suggest Jesus is just really nice. Um, And he is nice in a really awesome way. Um, But he's not just gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Let's put it that way. Revelation 19, you get a picture of a guy on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood and this giant tattoo on the side that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. I mean, he is a king, and he is a fierce warrior king that's coming to destroy evil and put everything right and reign in perfect wisdom and justice and mercy. He's the good king that your hearts always long for, but he's a king nonetheless. He's not this wimpy pushover that sometimes we make him into. What's this king going to do when he comes? 
What's the return of the king going to be like for us? Like Aragorn, like good King Richard, like Aslan, like Arthur, Jesus is going to come back and reign in perfect justice and mercy. Um, He's going to reign in perfect wisdom, and he's going to put everything right. Ultimately, he's going to bring the land in a time of prosperity that will never end. See, we all want this. We want a king to reign, but we don't want him just to reign for 20 years or 4 years or 40 years. We want him to reign forever. We want him to put things right forever. And that's what King Jesus promises to do. We read about how he's going to ultimately heal us and all of creation in Revelation chapter 21. The king comes for our healing. It says in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And this is after Jesus has come back to judge and raise the dead. And he says in verse 2, John, this is John in his vision in Revelation, says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So there's going to be a wedding between heaven and earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hear the language about healing. Hear the the language about how this king comes personally to heal us, to restore us, to make everything new. It says, and death shall be no more. This king doesn't allow death in his kingdom. I'm a big fan of that. "Neither Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. This king comes to renew. This king comes to give life eternal. He comes to heal you, restore you, and put everything right. This is the pinnacle of our hope as Christians. And this is what everybody, Christian or non-Christian, is longing for deep in their hearts. They're longing for a good king, the true king. But if he's really a king, there's something here for us to consider as well. Um, I think we all agree that, yes, we want that kind of a king, and yes, yes, we want healing, and we want him to do all these wonderful things and renew the earth. And, but then we come back to the idea, if he really is the king that he promised, then kings have demands, don't they? Kings have um, authority over us. And Jesus is that kind of a king. Now, he's a good king nonetheless, and so we need not be scared of this like we would be of a human king. But Jesus has authority and he makes demands. And so it's important that we examine how we're treating him. Are we treating him as a king? Are we, are we, are we bowing before him? Are we treating him as if, he's, as if we're his loyal subjects? The idea of confessing Jesus as king and as Lord is very serious for Christians. We saw this last week in the waters of baptism. That's why, you know, when the Bible tells us to confess Jesus as Lord... That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what we're called to do as Christians. And when we confess Jesus as Lord, it's like saying, you're the king in my life. I don't call the shots anymore. And that's why those who were baptized last week said, you know, I confess to the church and the world, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. What does that mean? What does that even mean to us? Well, they said it in just a few words later. They said, this means my life belongs entirely to him. So our lives are not our own anymore. And that's what it means to be in a kingdom. It means that as a subject, you belong to the king. 
Your life is in the king's hands. And this is a terrifying thing if you have an evil king. Because he can abuse you and do whatever he wants to you and put you under the worst kind of tyranny. But this is an incredible thing if your king is the great king who only uses his power and authority to cause you to flourish. And this is the kind of king that Jesus is. But nonetheless, it's important that we are examining how we're treating him. If we're treating him as a king, it will look different. There are certain things that we'll do. Keller suggests that there are four things that we must do if we're going to be treating Jesus as king. And I'm going to say, I'm going to say what Keller's word, four words are here and expand on them a little bit for our time here today, and then we'll be done. First of all, if we're treating Jesus as a king, we must obey him. This is where Christianity becomes really unpopular. You know, people love to hear about being rescued. People love to be hearing, hearing about grace and what God has had for us. And all those things are true and they're wonderful. But we tend to hate the idea of obedience. We tend to hate the idea of, I am a subject and I don't call the shots in my life anymore. Someone else gets to call the shots in my life. And that's what we mean when we say Christians are called to obey him. Now, we never do this perfectly and there's grace for us when we fall, certainly. Um, that's part of why he came, because we couldn't obey perfectly. Um, that is why he came. But nonetheless, Christians confess that Jesus is our king, and we're called to obey him. So I would ask you today, are you obeying the king? Are you obeying him? Uh, many of us, I think, treat Jesus um, not as a king, but as a consultant. So we say, well, I know Jesus says that I'm supposed to forgive, but you have no idea what this person did to me. So I can't, you know, I can't do that. See, if you're only obeying Jesus when it's practical or when it makes sense to you or when it lines up with your view of how the world ought to work, then you're not treating him as a king. You're treating him as a consultant. He's giving you advice and you're saying, well, I don't know. And I, I, this time I'll go with Jesus and the next time I might just do what I want to do. So if you're deciding how you spend your money and it's just your money and you're deciding who you should sleep with or not sleep with and, and, and none of this has any bearing on what Jesus says, the king says, then he's not really the king in your life. He's just a consultant. So are you treating him as a king or are you treating him as a consultant? We must obey the king to the best of our ability. Like I said, this grace is always present here for when we mess up. But our heart should be, yes, I'm going to obey the king. And when we screw up, we say, I'm going to do my best to obey the king. I'm falling on the king's grace and I'm going to try harder to obey him. Are you obeying Secondly, treating Jesus as a king involves submitting to him. And this primarily um, is seen in our lives when things go really bad, especially when our plan for how life should go unravels. Then, um, you know, our temptation is to shake our fist at him and say, how could you let all this happen? And how dare you interrupt my plan for how things should go in my life? Whereas a Christian comes to Jesus as king and says, I don't understand this. God, I don't understand why you're allowing this into my life. Um, And you wrestle with it, but ultimately you say, you're the king and I trust you. You're the king, you're all wise, you know what's best, I don't know what's best. Now I have a really good idea of how my life should go. Um, I imagine most of you do too. You can imagine the certain things that should not be in there, death of close relatives and loved ones, at least untimely death, um, death of children for sure, 
And these things cause, they shake us, and they shake our faith. And that's, it's not wrong to run to the king and say, why? And wrestle through it with him. But if ultimately you say, if, you, if ultimately you can't come to the king and submit and say, you know what? Because you're the king, you know best. I don't know what's best. If you can't do that, then he's not the king in your life. Be, having a king means you submit to him. And especially in these very difficult times, you say, you know what? I don't, I don't know the way that my life should go, but you do, and you have my life in your hands. My life belongs to you, and I trust you. So submission is also, it goes hand in hand with trusting him. And thirdly, we must rely on him. And this gets at, at the idea of um, if we're relying on the king to be our source of joy and happiness and hope, then there must never be anything else that we say, well, I need Jesus, but I also need this in order to be happy in life. It can't be Jesus plus anything else in order to be happy. Otherwise, Jesus just becomes a means to get to your true king. See what I'm saying? I I had this in high school um, with playing basketball. I often prayed to Jesus, just let me light it up. I need a big game tonight. You know, I need, I need like 30 points. I need to shoot like 75% from downtown. And uh, this would, I would really glorify you, God, if I did this. And really what I was saying was, I can't be happy if I go out and make a total fool out of myself. I can't deal with all the criticism, you know. Um, I, I just, I can't take it if I don't play up to my abilities. And so I need you to help me get to my real God, my real king. I need you to help me with that. Will you help me? And so it kind of sounded really spiritual. Here I was praying about this thing and saying after the games, yeah, I just give all the glory to God. But really, I was, I was out for my own fame, for my own name. And Jesus was a means to getting to my real God. He was a means to serving my true king. So when we're relying on him, we say, Jesus, there are things in this life that you've given me that I love and enjoy. Um, and I wouldn't... I wouldn't love to lose them. I would certainly not like to lose them. It would be painful to lose them. However, I, if, if I have you, I'm going to be fine. That's what it means to really rely on the king, to say, you are the omega. You're the end. If I have you in the end, I'm going to be okay. You're the only, the only non-negotiable thing in my life. I must have you, and if I have you, my life can be okay. If there's, if there's anything that's, but Jesus plus this, then you're not really relying on him as a king for your hope and your joy and your happiness. He's not really the end thing. He's kind of a means to getting to your end. And lastly, if we're going to treat him as a king, we must obey, submit, rely, but we must come to him expectantly. And this is a problem for some people like me who deal with pessimism and, and cynicism from time to time. Um, because ultimately, if Jesus is a king, he has authority, he has unbelievable resources, and he has unbelievable power beyond what you and I can imagine to do things in our circumstances that we could not see happening. So this means approaching Jesus as king in our prayer life means that we cannot say, well, God could never do anything in that. He could never do anything in this situation. He couldn't change the, this broken relationship. He could never um, free this person from their addiction. He could never break the chains that are all around this. He could never redeem this particular event in my life. If we're approaching him as a king, we have to come to him expectantly. John Newton said this, and I love it. He said, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. 
for His grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. We can't out-ask Him. He's a king. He's got all the resources. Now, this can also be frustrating when He doesn't do what you want. But remember, He's the omega desire, not the thing that you're asking Him to do. But nonetheless, He wants you to come expectantly to say, look, Jesus, you're the king. You can save this person that I so badly want saved. Some of you are crying out right now for family members who don't know Jesus and they're destroying their lives. They're walking into destruction day in and day out and you're like, will you please save them? Will you please drag them out of the pit that they're in? And that's a kingly kind of request because you can't do it. So if you're treating him like a king, you'll be asking things all the time that you could never do on your own. You'll be asking him things like, things that you're like, that would blow me away if that actually happened. Because I could never do that. So is your prayer life ordered around things that are just things that basically you could sort of manage to do in your own strength? Or are you asking for big things? Are you coming to him expectantly because he has riches and power and authority and he can do anything? Are you treating him like a king today? My prayer is that this Advent season, you would long and yearn for the king more than ever before. That you would pay attention to that desire in your heart that, yes, I must have a king. I must. And that this longing and yearning in your heart would create in you a deeper love for the good, the good king, the great king that is to come again. And that it would create a deeper allegiance into you that you would obey him and submit to him and rely on him and expect great things from him. And that ultimately, you would run to this king because he comes to heal you. He comes to free you. He comes to make you who God intended you to be for all eternity and to bring you back to the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for King David, who, although imperfect, points us to the great king. Lord, we long for you to come again. There's so much brokenness in our world that that points us to this deep and aching need for someone good, someone righteous, someone selfless, someone who is um, given to the people. We need you to come again as king. We long for you. you. Would you receive the longing in our hearts today as love towards you? And I pray that that longing in our hearts for the king would help us to realize and examine our lives, that we would be treating you as a king in the meantime. So we'll be ready when that day comes and you come in your glory with the white hair, hair white as wool and the countenance like lightning, eyes like burning fire. Don't let us find you treating, don't let us be found treating you as some sort of a consultant on that day. Let us be treating you as a king now leading up to that day, Lord. We long for you to come again. We worship you today as the king. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.